0: everybody, if you've got a Bible or an app that you use, we're going to be in Luke 10 today. Luke 10 is going to be helpful. It's not going to be the only passage that we use today, but it's going to be the one that maybe pulls it all together. It's one that's very helpful for me. Luke 10. And if you're a guest and you want a Bible, we've got them on the front table out there for you if you want to take one home with you. Um, Otherwise, it's all going to be on the screen today. Hey, listen, we typically take The few weeks, three, four weeks in between our fall series, which this year was the Apostles Creed and Advent, by design, we typically leave that open so that we as a leadership team can maybe take the pulse and zoom in on something that's timely for our people, something that we've done every year. This year, what we're going to do is take three weeks to zoom in a little bit more tightly around our church's mission statement. And I know what that sounded like, what I just, it, what that sounded like is it sounded like I just said, we're gonna take three weeks to go through our employee manual, didn't it? A little bit, whenever I said that, or our bylaws. Um, fear not, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna do anything near like that. And don't let the word mission statement fool you. All a mission statement does is answers the question, what are we about? I've encouraged families to build their own mission statement. I've, encu- I've encouraged people to build your own personal mission statement because I'm a big believer in mission statements. Businesses have them and we typically don't really pay much attention to them, right? Because they're usually kind of wordy. Sometimes if you were to take the business's name or the company's name out, you wouldn't even know you wouldn't be able to match the business with the mission statement. So we just imagine churches and their mission statements to be somewhat similar. A lot of church speak, crammed into some maybe nine to 15 words that you're not going to remember. It's buried into the recesses of somebody's website. The staff might not even know it. But that's why there's so many books and consultants on how to build the Bigger, Better, Faster mission statement that serves everybody's purposes. Um, it's big. It's a big business. We've hired consultants for that. I've bought a lot of the books. I've walked with a lot of church planters on how to build and develop a mission statement. And this is why I'm a big believer in them. They're great for navigating when fog comes, when you've got two decisions and they're both good or a decision between two things and they're both bad. Basically, what a mission statement does is it reminds you, "Ah, but this is what we're about. It reorients us when we're in that fog. This is the mission statement for Tesla, okay? Tesla says that their mission is to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy through increasingly affordable electric vehicles in addition to renewable energy generation and storage. See how they just, they did the best they could, right? To take all these words full of meaning and put them together. You're almost bored reading it before you even get halfway done with it, right? Now, this is what's interesting about that mission statement. There's nothing in there that says that they're gonna launch rockets into space, right? Right? even though the same guy owns that company as well. That's SpaceX. That's a totally different company, right? And one thing that SpaceX does not do is build tunnels, bore out tunnels. They've got a different company for that, the boring company, right? So if you were to read all of those mission statements, they will all state, this is what we're about, which is why it was so interesting when he made 7,000 flamethrowers, right? He made all these flamethrowers, he made $4 million on them, and it didn't fit within the mission statement of any of his companies, not X, not SpaceX, not anything, which was part of the reason it was so interesting and unique. Listen, as a church leadership team, we were so creative with our mission statement that we plagiarized it straight out of the Great Commission, okay? Which, in all honesty, between you and me, any good, healthy church, their mission statement, it should sound and rhyme a lot with the Great Commission. And that's what ours is. Because God has already handed us a mission. This is what it says in Matthew 28. This is in the 18th verse. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the son and of the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that i have commanded you and behold i am with you always to the end of the age it's a beautiful mission statement that's the one that commissions you and me as disciples of the king this is legacy's mission statement in case you didn't know enjoy jesus invest in others make disciples in all areas of life big question What if you don't enjoy Jesus? What if you don't? What does it even look like to enjoy Jesus? And does Jesus care if you enjoy him or not as long as you're making disciples? As long as you're doing a good job of the Great Commission. I mean, after all, the Great Commission seems to tell us to do stuff, right? To do things. In fact, the word enjoy is not even in there when you think about it. And it's not even an executable item, To enjoy. I mean, when we hear the word enjoy, which is a playoff of the word joy, enjoy just means to put joy into something. Whenever we hear that, we think of emotion, a feeling that could come, it could build, it can it can vaporize just depending on what we're feeling around us. I mean, I enjoy college football. I did not enjoy the game last night. Are we tracking? I enjoy Christmas, right? I'll even get, I enjoy fruitcakes. I realized the other day that I'm alone in the room whenever I say that out loud. I don't know what your problem is. It's a cake with fruit in it. It's the best of both worlds. I like fruitcake, right? I do not enjoy ugly Christmas sweater parties. They're dumb. They're dumb. Stop doing it. But joy, although it's not smaller than gladness, It's not smaller than happiness, it is much bigger. And I'm gonna fight for and submit to you that it's much more valuable, that we walk in joy. In our metro area, the Knox metro area, we have what I call a lot of religious residue still. Even though as our metro area grows, and it is growing, the average age is dropping, We're, we're, we're aging down as a metro area, still, a lot of religious residue, and Jesus is not really seen as one to be enjoyed, is he? I mean, this might be one of the biggest reasons we came to Plant Legacy Church. It's because we sensed, me and my wife, Kevin and his wife, Chase and his wife, as our three families came. We we smelled something, and that is that people they don't love and enjoy Jesus. They don't enjoy community and they don't enjoy mission. Not to this city. We thought maybe there's room for us here. Because in our metro area, Jesus always saves, but then he exits the room. He's like the paramedic that comes, saves your life, and then leaves. And you don't grow in your fascination for that paramedic. You don't deepen your increasing joy in that paramedic. It's just somebody that you are thankful for, someone that you appreciate. Jesus is to be respected here. He is to be revered here. He's not really to be enjoyed here, though. Not really. And people have asked, Luke, why does it say enjoy Jesus and not enjoy God? That's a great question, right? In fact, we give a book away on our guest table. If you're a guest, be sure to grab one. It is a good book. And the name of it is Enjoying God. And it talks about how to engage and interact with God in his, in his Trinitarian form, which is a very beautiful book. It's a, good, it's a good teaching or else we wouldn't have bought crates of it for everybody. In that cultural moment where we were crafting this church on the back of bar napkins and just verbally, we knew that our job here would be primarily to platform the beautiful person and work of Jesus Christ to a very gospel board city. And that's what Knoxville is. It's very gospel board. Even the word gospel has lost its freight, if you want to say it that way. It's an adjective that implies religion. We put it on the front of words gospel broadcasting, gospel radio, right? Gospel choir. I found a gospel tract in the bathroom. <laughs> gospel is in front of things and therefore it stops being anything. It's just a word. And among a gospel board people, and I would even say a gospel inarticulate people, Jesus is none other than a means to an end. And of course the end is just getting to heaven, right? Once Jesus has done his work, you and I, we advance to stage two of being a Christian, which is better behaviorism, to stop sinning and to start doing better things, like the Great Commission. But if heaven has been made out to be a prize, and Jesus has already won that prize for us, then what good is a savior whenever the saving's been done? It's not someone to be enjoyed, right? So many people, rather than finding fascination or joy in Jesus, find boredom or apathy, Now, this is why this is important in a mission statement. A lack of joy sabotages the Great Commission. It burns it up, really. Right? I mean, let me, I'm gonna show you a passage that we don't typically read for ourselves. This is not the main passage. Stay in Luke 10 if you're there. This is in Matthew 23, and this is Jesus. And he says this in the 15th verse: Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, which is like a disciple. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Here's the main idea of what Jesus is saying. Legalistic people make more legalistic people. Hypocrites form, craft, disciple, more hypocritical hypocrites. And I've grown up for years reading this passage. And when I'm done reading it inside, I think, yeah, you dirty villains, you travel so far and you spend so much time and energy and the disciples you make are twice as bad as you are and I don't ever really read it for myself. We we shouldn't be so quick to discount this passage. We too form disciples after ourselves, right? Our discipleship. When you disciple your kids, you disciple your spouse, You disciple your neighbors, those you work with, those you play with, those who are across the room, those who aren't here but are part of this family. When you disciple people, that's not unflavored. It's it's not without your influence. It's not in a vacuum. I remember as a young Christian, maybe 20, 21, I remember being discipled to look like Christ, but it wasn't without the fingerprints of the men and women around me. I remember, I remember the, the coin dropping in my mind and thinking, oh, so so that's how you pray. I mean, I kind of always wondered. I I had something in my head. I probably got it from TV. I'm not quite sure, but that sounded different than when this gal over here prayed, and yet they're both okay. Interesting. Interesting. Or, so that's how you evangelize. That's how you tell somebody about Jesus? Like, I I thought that was going to be harder. I thought it was more mystical. That's how you start an awkward conversation with somebody that doesn't know you and ask them to... You know, is there anything I could pray for? Can I tell you about Christ? That, that wasn't so hard. Oh, is that how a man acts? Is, is that how a husband acts? Interesting. I'm thankful. I'm thankful. I was discipled to be like Jesus, but not without the influence of men and women around me. Likewise, likewise, if I don't enjoy Jesus with an increasing fascination, how will those coming around me and after me have a model? I might not build a a disciple that is twice the child of legalism, but it's very easy to build twice the child of spiritual boredom. Oh, it's very easy to do that. Here's another passage that's very helpful in Luke 10. This is going to be our main passage today, and we're going to start in verse 38. It's a very common passage, in all honesty, and we've preached it several times. It says this, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Okay. It's hard to imagine Jesus having friends, by the way, isn't it? These weren't just disciples of Jesus. These were his friends. Just like we have friends. No, they were also his disciples, but these were, Jesus loved them. I get the feeling when I read this that Martha is executing her bestest hospitality that she has. You could see that she's really putting her shoulder into it. That's how I read it anyway. You know what's cool about this passage, by the way? Separate sermon, I can't preach it today. Is that God came to earth as the ultimate form of hospitality to you and me. Right? Hospitality is not just having people over for dinner. That is a manifestation of hospitality. Hospitality, the idea behind the word is just grace extended to outsiders. That's what hospitality is, right? And so God is the most hospitable host who has ever lived because he came to us. And what we have here is this beautiful picture of Martha serving the one that ultimately came to serve her. She's hosting the ultimate host. This is rich with gospel texture, but that's not where we're going today. Martha sees her sister not being helpful. Family, am I right? Right? That's what's happening right here. And she petitions Jesus to persuade her to help. And Jesus doesn't. Instead, Jesus says that Mary made the best possible choice of all the portions. Portions think food, think selection at the table. Of all the portions, she chose the best. To sit, to listen, to savor, to enjoy what was happening in that moment. Now, then the story ends. Then it just ends. You ever notice that? Not much much of a story resolution. I always imagine, I, this is because I'm much more of a Martha than I am a Mary, right? I'm, I'm, I'm very anxiously busy. I'm over busy a lot of times, so I can be very distracted like Mary, with like Martha. I always imagine Jesus finishing the statement and then kind of looking down at, at Mary and going, but you could help a little bit, right? I mean, you could get up and maybe help her put some stuff up and then everybody could come and sit down and we could ch- that's how I imagine it. It's probably not what happened. Probably what happened is Martha put her stuff down, came and sat down at the feet of the king of all creation and listened to the words of life. That's what I imagine is probably more likely. But Luke doesn't say. After all, it's not the point of why Luke is telling it. But what is the point of Luke telling it? Why is this in your Bible? Isn't it interesting? It's not a story just for story's sake. Why exactly? Why do we have it? Here's one application for this story in our life. You and I, we have a real temptation to swap resting and rejoicing for Jesus, resting in him, rejoicing in him for distracted busyness for the sake of Jesus. We could swap the two, right? And when I say resting in Jesus, I don't mean a lack of activity. I mean a lack of busyness, and there is a difference, a big difference, really. It's possible to be highly active and in motion with a rested soul. And conversely, it's very possible to be over-busy of the soul and over-busy with your life. But the gospel good news, the good news of God for mankind in the person of Christ for you, this good news leans us forward into great activity. The gospel creates a people in motion, not in stasis, but the heart is at rest. We have a rested heart. This is why you and I are free to have a rested heart, although we're exhausting ourselves physically, emotionally, we're rested. Our soul is rested. And that's because we no longer have to placate an angry God. We no longer have to impress God. That work has been done for us, which is why Christ cries out, it is finished. There's no one left to impress. There's nothing left to prove. There's nothing left to earn. This is the beauty of the gospel, or the gospel is no longer good news. So in our story, Martha is anxious over many things, he says, which just means that she's got a busy soul. She's busy. She's over-busy. But she's well-intentioned. She's thoughtful, right? She's doing something good. She's just distracted, The beauty of this little story is the contrast it builds for us. And anytime you see drastic contrast in the Bible, that's typically where the lesson of that story is buried. And that's the case here. Mary, by contrast, orients towards Jesus, the better portion, his presence, his words. I think whenever I read this, I think of David in Psalm 16, saying as a busy king with a rested soul, the Lord is my chosen portion. All the king's portions, and I'm sure he had a few. He said, the Lord is my chosen one and my cup. He says, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That's just another way of declaring the favor of God over him. And he says, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is what this story teaches you and me. It teaches us the gospel-shaped posture of being before doing. So important for us, being before doing, before the gospel is a call to do anything, it's a call and an invitation to stay, choose the better portion, and be. To enjoy. Boy, we flip this, don't we? So naturally, we flip this. We think and we must behave well in order to earn a place at his feet. Certainly, the Great Commission tells us to do things, right? It says that we need to make disciples, to, to do something. And I'd even submit that we exhaust ourselves to those ends, making disciples of all nations, that will make disciples of all nations until the very end of the very age. And yet I would also contend even more sharply that in order to make disciples who enjoy Jesus, we must enjoy being one. In order to make disciples who are really fascinated with Christ, we ourselves need to be fascinated with Christ, else we make someone who is twice as bored as we are twice as apathetic as we are. But can we just be honest? Sitting at the feet of Jesus is an uncomfortable place to be, isn't it? It's hard for us to sit and stay there. This is why so many of us would rather do something for Jesus than rather sit in silence. I mean, sign me up to build something with Habitat for humanity. Sign me up for a soup kitchen. Sign me up to exert myself. That's just a lot easier than to just sit in a quiet room And be left alone with your own thoughts and your own soul. It's also why whenever we have times of prayer and devotion, isn't it easier to talk to God than it is to listen? Then listen? It's hard. We simply don't feel like we deserve to be there, right, at his feet. We feel like we don't deserve to be there until we accomplish some level of self-proving and better behavior it's, it, this is why we feel presumptuous to sit in front of the Bible or read or pray or be in a service like this or be in a DNA group or a missional, whatever you think. This is why it is so hard for us to do that whenever we have sinned recently. We feel like in our heart we need to Martha up for a while before we show our face, right? We need to do some things before we sit where Mary sits. I think we imagine us sitting at the feet of Jesus after we have sinned or have had a less impressive week or a month. And as we're sitting before Christ, I think we imagine that he looks down upon us and says, hey, I wasn't going to say anything until you sat down, but (laughs) don't you have some work to be doing? Don't you have some things that you could be doing to show that you really love me, to show that you really should be sitting here? I mean, we could have a real moment, you and me, but is now the time? That's how we imagine him, isn't it? couldn't even be further from the truth. The truth is is the feet of Jesus, just like the foot of the cross, is not a place we earn, it's a place that's been earned for us. It's been already earned. Which this pushes me into a repentant place. Because when I find myself avoiding the feet of Jesus until I have been a good Martha. When I catch myself doing that, what I'm really saying is that what Jesus did to earn that spot was insufficient. He's not good enough. He doesn't tell the truth. He wasn't strong enough. He wasn't sufficient enough. He wasn't complete enough. So I have to add my better behaviorism to what he did before I could even come close to God. That's a sin. That's a sin. We're we're not a victim. We're, We're an aggressor. That's something we repent from. But again, what does this have to do with the Great Commission? I know as a pastor... I've done this long enough to know that whenever I speak about making disciples, I can almost feel, I can almost sense the the shame wash across the room, as I just discussed something that nobody really feels like they're doing a good job of. I feel like I just told everyone they need to do more cardio, right? And we're going to talk about that for a moment. Luke, I'm not shaping anybody. I'm not forming anyone. I'm not discipling anyone towards the cross. I'm not discipling anyone away from the cross. I feel so unworthy. As a disciple maker, friends, this is the truth. The truth is, is that you and I, we have a lot of work to do. We have, a lot of, we have a lot of disciples to make. I mean a lot. And not just disciples, but gospel-fascinated disciples who enjoy Jesus, who have this bulletproof joy in who God is, who will build disciples that look just like that, who will build disciples that just look like that, who will plant churches that will do the same over and over. We have a lot of work to do. This is all very true, but but it will be our joy in Jesus that forms and makes disciples that are gospel-fascinated and not gospel-bored. That's step one. If you want to see Knoxville change, and I assume you do, it starts, step one, enjoying Jesus above all things. Contain deeper longings for Christ above all other longings. Have more profound fascination for Jesus than anything else in this world, above all things. And I'm just like you, and I know, we have broken bodies. And we're doing broken things and broken days, right? And we don't always feel like we enjoy Jesus. We don't, really, we don't even feel like we enjoy anything. Some days we just feel bored in general, right? Some days we don't even feel anything. It's just a day. Just chalk it up to just another day. So how do we enjoy Jesus when we really don't enjoy anything, that's a big question. Let's look at John 15. You could turn there if you're fast. Don't worry about it if you can't because it will be up on the screen. But in verse 8, yeah, we'll start in verse 8 of John 15. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Okay, so it's starting to sound a little bit like the Great Commission, just for a shade. That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So it sounded, it sounded a little bit like the Great Commission. It had some elements. And then he says this, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Imagine that. Imagine that. Boy, we rattle that off. That's a profound statement because when I think of all the people that have contained joy for any amount of time in their life, I think Jesus probably had the most. I think he had the most joy. And he's saying he wants to put his joy in us. Not that we'd have a little bit, but we would have it to the full. How does that happen? How on earth do we get that? Well, it's a gift. Deep from the treasuries of God's richest grace in favor on us. It's a gift. His joy that he builds inside of us, despite us. The joy that he creates in us, totally despite us. It's there to lift our drooping heads and our drooping hands and to cure our boredom. Galatians 5, 22, there's a moment where Paul speaks on this and it helps me right here. He says, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, joy. Peace, patience, kindness, and then so many other beautiful things. And I think that there could probably be some things added to that list. I don't think it's just secluded to that, that those few descriptors. But this is something that the Spirit builds in us. We can't self-manufacture joy. You can't happiness, gladness maybe, but not joy. Because they're not the same thing. In fact, whenever you experienced joy in Christ, You need in that moment, whatever you're doing, to recognize this is something God has given you as a gift. How fortunate you are to have joy. How fortunate we are to walk around with joy. And friends, this is why you can enjoy Jesus in the most mundane of days, in the most painful of seasons, right? And I think intuitively, instinctively, I think some of you already know this because you've had significant seasons of discomfort and yet, Jesus seems so very real and so very close. And isn't that true for you? I've had moments where I've thought, man, this is a booger of a season. And yet, I have this quickened awareness. And I'm not sad about that. Like, I know in six months, this this issue is going to probably go away. I might remember it, but it's not going to plague me like it does now. And I, I might not even remember all the aspects, but what I will remember is this depth of Cohesion that I have felt sitting at the feet of Jesus. And as much as I want the storm clouds to go away, I'm going to miss this. This deep, rich time with the Lord. I hate discomfort just like you do. I do not hate the very close presence of God. You see, joy is bigger than happiness. So much bigger. It's not an emotion. Enjoying Jesus means sitting at the feet of Christ with a rested heart. And listen, even whenever you think you've heard it all about Christ, discovering more of him. And the more you discover, the more you enjoy. And the more you enjoy, the more you discover. I think what we do sometimes is we think we've heard so much about Christ, there's nothing left to plumb. There's no more depths to go. There's no more far reaches to, to discover Christ. Kind of like what we do with our spouses. I'm still shocked, by the way. I mean, I'll be married 25 years next year with my bride, and there are still moments where she'll say or do something and I'll think, huh, well, look at that. I, think I, I don't think I knew that about her, right? And she is a finite person. She's contained. Jesus is uncontainable. You think you've heard? Friend, you haven't even started to meet Christ yet. You haven't even met. We have scratched the surface of the reality and the beauty of Christ, so much to be fascinated with, so much to enjoy in Christ. Oh, he's so big. So much to enjoy. It means simply seeing him to be far more than a disposable savior who did his thing in this historically heroic act, and now that that's done, he just tells us to do stuff, like make disciples, I suppose. But listen, when your life is dreadful and dreary, or maybe worse, just bored, when that's your life, you can pray and ask God to build joy in you. Did you know that, that it's that easy? See, you thought I was going to give you 10 steps to have joy, didn't you? Or at least two. Luke, give us something to write down. Two steps to have joy. I don't have it. I want it. How do I get it, right? You just, you pray. We think that our faith in God follows our feelings. It's swapped. Our feelings for God follow our faith. So whenever you approach God with this faith-drenched prayer, this trust-framed prayer. That's where joy will begin, and it doesn't have to be a complicated prayer. Jesus, I need joy, period. New sentence. Jesus, I know that if I see you more clearly, I will enjoy you more, and I just don't see you very clearly. Christ, could you show me something new about yourself today? I want to adore you more. I trust that you are enough. I just... I would love for my feelings to follow. That's what I would love. Because, Lord, your portion is enough. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. Listen, we're going to pray this together here as a church in a moment. And I'm going to want your soul to agree with my words as honestly as you can. And this is why. Because I want you to have joy. I want you to have joy. I want you to have joy inexhaustible. And I want whatever level of joy that you feel today or this year to not be good enough next year, but to go for more, to discover more Jesus, to chase him down, to spend more time, to enrich that relationship. Friends, this is how we overcome religious boredom. This is how we overcome religious anxiety. It's how we refuse to be distracted in an overbusy world. And I'll just quote the Great Commission and behold, he is always with you, always to the end of the age. This is so good for us. This is so good news. I mean, listen, this dinner that he had with Martha and Mary, it ended, it ended. I think we can all assume that, right? There was a, there was a moment where Jesus was like, hey, I, it's been great, I gotta get out of here, you know? I gotta, or, or, or hey, Martha and Mary, they're like, hey, we got, listen, the kids got school in the morning, can we hurry this up? I mean, that, that dinner ended at some point. Ours does not. We have access to Christ that is to such the degree that you could sit at his feet anytime you want, anytime. We can always sit at his feet, always trust that he is accessible, even in our most boring days, our most painful days. We can always trust the joy that he gives us. Although it might be hard to hold it in a tough season, that tough season cannot steal it from us. It cannot steal it. In all honesty, let me say something everybody already knows. Knoxville is never going to be changed by a church that is just really, really good at soup kitchens and trendy nonprofits. We're just not going to build enough cool coffee houses and give the money to some country that we've never heard of or never traveled to. That is not how we're going to change this city. Let me tell you what will change this city. Men and women who are ruined for anything else except the deepest of fascinations for Christ and how to get more of him. That, friends, will change the city. That will change your life. It will change your block. It will change this city. Man, I've got so much to, to repent for in a sermon like this. Let me ask you the question. Before, we're about to end here in just a moment. Are you comfortable at the feet of Jesus? Honestly. Honestly. Are you comfortable there? Or do you always feel like a, a round peg in a square hole? Like there's some work you need to do. Sure, he'll tolerate your presence, but he preferred that you have some more badges on your vest before you deigned to sit down. Let me ask you another question: Are you busy and distracted? Do you prefer that over enjoying Jesus? These are areas for you and I to repent, right? For us to say, "Lord, I'm sorry," because what I'm really saying is, is that you're just not good enough. I mean, I would never say that out of my mouth. But with my life, I'm saying that you're insufficient. I mean, I would never. I mean, theologically, I don't believe that. But what I'm really saying is, is I don't think you were telling the truth whenever you said that Christ was sufficient. Whenever you said that it is finished, I mean, I believe it, but I don't believe it. That's a point of repentance for you and me. That's a point where we we drop to our knees and we cry out. And we say, God, forgive me. I need you. Go ahead and stand with me. We're gonna finish up with this, but I, I will say this: If you're here or you're watching online and you are far from Christ, Christianity is something you're just kind of flirting with, looking at, analyzing, assessing, however you want to say it. Let me just say that one thing that the Great Commission tells you and me is that there is an authority and it is not us. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to not you. It's been given to not you. And part of the thing that we see and a new life one to Christ is an authority swap. The authority that we've always carried over our own lives to say, I am boss, we hand over, and we say, I am disciple, you are king. You are king, I'm no longer king. Right? And that's a pretty big thing. That's something you're gonna, you're gonna need to wrestle over because a million sermons could come out of that, that vital truth. And we're all, the path of Christendom, the path of Christianity is learning how to daily, moment by moment, stop being the authority. Your will, not mine. That's just all of Christianity. That's just part of being a disciple who's growing, right? But let me tell you this, if you're far from Christ either, you will have joy in your life. You will have joy that you've never had. Not, not, I mean, this world, in this world, you've never had joy in this world. You've had moments of happiness. You've had a glimmer of gladness, and then it goes away just like that, right? It's not joy. And you know that. You know what I'm saying. And I will even say this, joy will not be found by chasing heaven down as fast as you can, but the Christ who radiates heaven with his own glory. It is in Christ, not just in heaven, that we find the deepest of joys and the deepest of fascinations. So yes, that's why we have it stated as such in our mission statement to enjoy Jesus. Amen? Amen.